Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Hopefully you guys are uh, doing well. This is a conversation with Ricky Jenkins about race, reconciliation, the gospel. Ricky, how you doing? First question out of the game. How's yeah, it man, Do, doing great, man, considering. I am a pandemic right. crowd. I'm good, man. <laughs> You're looking good there, brother. The, how's the golf game? You okay? Do you get out? Uh, the the great the great tragedy of the last three months. I have not been golfing in three months, and you've seen my golf game. So it's amazing. My golf game is so bad that actually this probably helps. <laughs> and now <laughs> one one hundred seven one hundred eight degrees. So I'm 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 not going anytime. Oh my goodness! Yes. So Ricky is in Palm Springs, California. For those of you who don't know, um, and uh, so the courses aren't open. Courses are open, but they're okay. open to the people that own golf courses. <laughs> <laughs> and they're open for the people whose wives let them go out to potentially contract COVID and bring it back to their young children. Is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. My wife's yeah. got three, we got three kids at home. It ain't a good look right now if I say, hey, honey, I'm, I'm leaving for four hours. Right. Nah, right. I need to stay let's married. Keep that, let, let's keep that down. Okay. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. perfectly fine if people do want to do that, by the way. Yeah. Exactly. All right. So, uh, <laughs> okay. So you, uh, it's been an interesting couple of weeks um, with uh, the whole, everything going on race wise. And so I want to talk with you as a Canadian, uh, specifically almost from a Canadian perspective. Um, and you and your bio is super helpful for, I think, the people who watch this because you have this unique experience, um, both kind of where you've lived, uh, who you are. And so I want to get into that a little bit to help us as Canadians, as Christians, to understand a little bit of the Black experience, uh, the Black American experience, which is somewhat unique to a lot of, you know, the audience probably, um, okay. because a lot of Canadians. Um, and, but tell us a little bit about like where you've lived, because you've done ministry in all these different places. Give us kind of a snapshot of, yeah, like who you are in regard to life and ministry in those cities you've lived in. Sure. To kind of give us a picture of, of your experience, because I think yeah, it's man. very unique. Absolutely. Well, man, uh, hey to, to Village, and man, I love you and Aaron and just what you're doing. So just want to give a shout out to you oh, guys. You. Uh, but man, yeah, um, grew up in the deep south, uh, Mississippi, um, which is the place I love, but a place that just doesn't garner a good reputation when you, when you talk about race and, and the gospel, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but grew up in the deep south, fourth generation pastor. So grew up in the black church tradition, um, uh, pretty much. Uh, my first pastorate out, out of college was in Oakland, California, right? So right there in the heart of the Bay, uh, very uh, emphatic social justice hotbed, was out there pastoring in a small church for seven years, uh, jumped out of Oakland and went to Memphis, Tennessee, which in 1968, of course, is the place where Dr. King was assassinated. Right, so Memphis, famous for racial tension, beautiful town, but man, troubled past, and served out there at a church called Fellowship Memphis, which was literally planted back in 03 to be this gospel-centered outpost that would be intentionally focused on racial reconciliation in a place like Memphis, Tennessee. Got a lot of formation there, uh, mid-April, fell in love, and started doctoral work in 2013, so jumped to Chicago, to start a PhD up at Trinity uh, Seminary, historical theology, just kind of studying, um, you know, post-civil rights movement activity when black and white spaces came together. And a chronicle, a mentor of mine, Reverend Dr. Crawford Loritz, who was actually discipled by Bill Bright from Campus Crusade himself. And so he just got this wonderful story that I think will really help us get insight into the 70s and 80s and how this experiment called reconciliation started to happen in our country. Yeah. So, man, still working on that. I'll, I'll finish, hopefully, before the Lord comes back. Uh, came back to Memphis, Tennessee, <laughs> to, serve, to serve there for a couple of years. Thought we were going to be there forever to just kind of really lift up Jesus and lift up racial reconciliation. If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Uh, this great church in the heart of the desert uh, reached out to us and asked us to consider coming out. So we've been yeah. in the desert now, man, almost three years by the end of this year. Southwest yeah. Church and trying to be salt and light, bro. So that's a little bit of yeah. So yeah, so you're at Southwest Church, Palm Springs, thousands of people, but a great um, symbol 
for this moment in a sense and the pressure you're probably feeling uh, as a pastor as a symbol almost um, because it's a very um, white evangelical like probably the race mixture of Palm Springs would be how do you think it would break up as you kind of do a demographic yeah, demographically, I'd probably say that Coachella Valley is a large space. You know, you, you're down here all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, but the valley itself is probably just north of 60% Hispanic Latino, mm -hmm. another 32, 33% white Caucasian, and then 7, 8% some of every, a lot of European American, only 2% African American, right. uh, a lot of African, a lot of uh, Native American for sure. But when right. you come to our church, right? It's more like 75% white, 20% uh, Hispanic, Latino, and then kind of 5%, you know, God knows what. Uh, <laughs> but it's increasingly becoming a more multi-ethnic totally. space, man. And that's, that's a big part of that's because of you. And when I talked to you about when you were taking, we met when you were in the midst of kind of taking this job. Yeah. Uh, that was part of your heart. It yep. was to be, be a, uh, a person who comes into a scenario that's probably known you know, mostly white lead pastors yep. uh, who talk a certain way and emphasize certain things. And here you were, you were going to come in as this guy and look out to this crowd and actually be something different than what they've known. And you were yep. going to intentionally do that yep. in order to kind of accomplish something. So talk to us about that. What did you yeah. want? What do you want to accomplish? Because you were talking about this this isn't, you know, for some people, it's like race is like a two week old conversation. <laughs> They're like, what, this is an issue. You've been studying this, living this out for so many years. And three years ago, we were talking, you were like, this is actually part of what I want to do. So talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, man. I appreciate that question for sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I'm a shepherd, dude, you're a shepherd. So the big part of our heart was God said, come here and love these people and, and be salt and light. But man, that was kind of our local expression, but our global expression is a deep conviction that what ails, uh, at least the American landscape, with the problem of race and that original sin in our nation, the answer for that issue is a gospel-centered, multi-ethnic church. And you can't read the New Testament without seeing that reality on every other page. So I, locally, I just want to be a shepherd and love people and preach and kiss babies. That's all, you know, that's all I want to do. But globally, man, I feel felt like Southwest and a guy like me being there was an opportunity where government is failing, where academia is failing, where corporate America is failing. We can now say, hey, here in the church of Jesus Christ, we're figuring out how because of the gospel, people that don't look alike, live alike, or vote alike can enjoy unity together through the gospel yeah. of Jesus Christ. And so, man, that's the big part of my heart because real talk, man, my buddies who look like me, who were passionate about racial reconciliation and multi-ethnic spaces. They were going to urban, younger places where it's already happening in culture. So my buddy Albert Tate and Brian Loritz and Eric Mason up in Philly. And of course they're doing exactly what they need to be, but they were kind of going to places where it's already happening in the street. My heart, me and April, was to go to a place where that conversation isn't happening at all that no one's even kind of aware of the need for it, but to go lovingly and graciously shepherd people that we might be able to, you know, progress there. So I'm, I'm for the long haul. I wanted to do it not in two years, but in 20. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, Southwest, I think, is a great place for us to see if I can do that. Yeah, and, and, that, and that would have been as, you know, I'm using this as a symbol for what everyone's kind of going through now. And for some people, that would have been a shock to the system in regard to the church because of what they've seen and you're not that your history isn't that your mm -hmm. style isn't that right and it's been beautiful like when i came and preached the southwest for the first time it was it was classic like crickets right like i'm i'm on fire i'm slamming it i'm throwing it down and it's like mm. <laughs> Golf <clap. You> know? <laughs> yeah and now i come now i come and people are like what's up there you know and it's like people are jacked up they're noisy they're like you've created some of that culture in them, that DNA, and it's beautiful to see. Yep. And so what kind of results are you hoping to see in that mission in the next, whatever, 10, 20 years, like you said? Are you hoping those numbers 
in the church symbolically go up and there's just this mishmash of Revelation 5 tribe tongue language even in the Coachella Valley. That's it, bro. That's it. You yeah. said it. I mean, my, my hope is that on the other side of 20 years, we will make our best effort at a Revelation 7-9 expression of the gospel here in the Coachella Valley where our church looks a lot more like our community. Um, that's a tangible and measurable outcome. But the real hope, Mark, is that as we preach the gospel, steward relationships one with the other, that we would not settle for a diversified Sunday. Mm -hmm. That we wouldn't stop until we have a diversified lifestyle Monday through Saturday. That's what I want. Right. I want our dinner table diversified because, bro, I just think it's through organic exposure, friendships, relationships, that folks will be moved in their heart through the power of the spirit to actually start moving from non-racist to being anti-racist, which is what I would say the New Testament calls us to. And that's where we're going to see a lot of freedom. So, man, here, here's what I'm starting to say to our folks. Um, if everybody at Southwest diversifies their dinner table, racism may be over in the Coachella Valley in five years. Simple as Beautiful. That, right? Yeah. Beautiful. Yep. I love it. So talk about, I heard you talk about the three Fs, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, I was watching an interview you were doing. Talk, talk us through that. Yeah. Yeah. That so, was beautiful. Yeah. So, you know, the big question with a lot of my white siblings uh, the last two weeks has been, and I love it because hearts are broken. Uh, the George Floyd tragedy gave America at a time where they can't go to movies, uh, ball games, concerts, time to focus on the, the sheer reality of what's happening with police, police brutality. So hearts have been moved, broken. I can't tell you, this is probably my seventh webinar this week to talk oh, yeah. about that, right? Yeah. That's the question. Yeah. Okay, I feel it. I'm burdened. Okay, what do I do? I'm going to answer that question, at least my two cents at that question. But man, first, I just want to minister to your, your crowd up there and say, I, I deal with a black, white, and Hispanic, Latino spectrum here. I don't know what's going on in Canada. Hey, I, I have no clue. I have no clue. But I'll say here in America, I think what helps my white siblings understand where we need to go is to see the long term, to see the end zone before they see the next play. And don't rush into the next play until you know the game plan for what God was in God's heart for this conversational racial reconciliation. So this is what's been helpful to my white siblings. When I say, you know, as a white person in America. And by white, sorry, my white siblings, uh, we have told people that. So you're married to a white girl. I'm married to a white girl. Yep. Right. So you're talking about her family and friends that you have that are white and have no experience being black in America and you're trying to actually teach them, right. okay, here's how right. to actually think and talk about this. Because what exactly. I'm finding, exactly. what I'm finding is um, there's a lot of people and it's okay for, of course, for white people to speak into this and talk about it, have an opinion. That's beautiful. Um, but sometimes it's people who don't, they haven't sat down in a conversation like this or any other and say, okay, help me listen first to your experience before I start talking. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Which I hope this will help accomplish for people. So, okay, continue on. Yes. That's a good word. And, yeah. you know, what I learned in my conversations, uh, Mark, is that more often than not, my white brothers and sisters don't realize just how much they already know. Yeah. It's just that privilege has created a reality whereby you don't have to act on what you know. So they assume an ignorance. They assume a lack of exposure. It's actually there. And this is how you know. Because I'll say to my white brothers and sisters, would you be happy, happy to be treated like you understand black people in America are treated? Like, would you be happy right. to be treated that way? And as right. soon as I say that, they're, they're like, no, not at all. It, that now they get that, oh, I'm actually competent. I actually do know what's going on. And yes, I've been tolerating it. Right. Oh, wow. And now they're like, okay, oh, good. No, I'm not happy at all. And man, let me just say it frankly and vulnerably. As a black guy, I would be ecstatic to be treated like a white person in this country. Mm -hmm. I would be happier to be treated like an Asian American in this country. Mm -hmm. I would be cool with being treated like a Hispanic and Latino person in this country. Mm -hmm. And so until you get those dynamics that the heart of Christ is for all of us to be happy 
with how we see one another being treated, you're just going to miss the heart of Christ in it, right? So I think everybody agrees with that. So here's three things I I encourage folks to do. I call them the three Fs. Um, Get the feelings, get the facts, and get the friends. Uh, Get the feelings, get the facts, and get the friends. And so for my average white brother and sister, get the feelings. And what I mean by that is have on your heart what's on God's heart. Uh, I'm very, very fearful of the average white person in America who can watch the George Floyd video, but the first thing they have to say and speak up against is something to the extent of, but what about all the rioting? But what about all the looting? But what about the police officers who are being harmed, which are all important, but what are you really evincing when you say, I'm not even gonna talk about George Floyd, I'm gonna move, you don't have feelings. And so, man, I encourage people to get- You're getting the chronology wrong. Exactly, too. exactly. Because as a believer, I care, my, my heart's broken for it all, right? Not just the, the pieces I want to pick out that I'm passionate about. Sure. So get the feelings, get this on your heart and commit your way. God, okay, I get it. I need to have race and injustice and all these things on my heart and get incensed about racism like you get incensed about abortion, right? Like this is part of God's heart. So get the feelings and then man, just get the facts, right? Like you don't get to be a Christian and be ignorant. <laughs> you just you just don't get that right. It's just not you don't you don't get to do that. And so like the level like privilege is when I don't say white privilege is troublesome. It's prob- problematic. Right. I got privilege too. You know what I mean? Like my, my folks had a little money. I got privilege too. Black it's black privilege and white privilege. But privilege with the race conversation is when you are ignorant of what. 13% of this country is immersed with as a black American. Privilege is when you know nothing about a whole demographics reality and feel ignorant. So that's privilege. So you don't get to not be uninformed. Get the books, right? Read the articles, watch the documentaries. You need to know what happened with Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman. You, you need to know what happened with King and the 60s or whatnot. You need to know that stuff because the stories were systematically or systemically designed to be left out of the average educational experience for a white person in this country. So get get the facts. And then bro, just get friends, man, just get friends. Uh, I don't know how it works in Canada. It's a bit more of a, um, of a cosmopolitan, cosmopolitan fluidity. Yeah they, yeah, they call it a mosaic. A mosaic, the, I love that. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the comparison is if, if the US is a melting pot where you take a culture and everyone tries to assimilate into a big pot that Canada kind of tries to retain people's cultures in a, in a mosaic and it has, it has problems. But anyway, that's how people talk about it. Yeah. Sure, sure, I like that better. It sounds more New Testament to me. Right. Uh, yeah. But yeah, bro, like get some friends, man, just, just enjoy whatever Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well and John four must have enjoyed. They broke every conventional rule of their society to be together and to create this space where gospel progression can happen. You know what I'm saying? This is Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman having a little conversation about crumbs, but Jesus was just saying the gospel goes to everybody. So dude, get some friends. If you don't have a friend like you, right? Like as a guy who comes to America a lot to preach, like if you um, didn't have a diversified dinner table, you wouldn't have a diversified preaching style and you wouldn't be able to show up well in America. You know what I'm saying? Like if you didn't have a lot of friends and I know you have a lot of friends that look like me, like if, if you didn't have that, man, your gospel posture is already handicapped. You know what I'm saying? So even well, on the ground. Yeah. Well, I, I think that like you experience life different when your friends, uh, we all kind of events happen and you interpret it through a grid. And when your buddies are going, this is how I interpret this event. And so be careful. What about this angle? What about that view? You're like, you're slower to just come up with the classic conservative liberal narratives and go, Oh yeah, no, this is about my buddy, Ricky. This is about his life. So, so let's pivot to that for a second. So tell us about the black experience in your life, whether that's a few stories growing up, whether that's stuff now that help us understand this, because there are people 
who, and you know, I mean, social media is a fire right now with every view, left, right, center, sideways, about everyone's throwing stats around and sharing this commentator and that commentator. Yeah. And it's, it's chaos. I mean, there's so much information flying around and everybody yeah. takes that information and fits it into their narratives and whatever. So yeah. it's an interesting time like that. But help us, you know, Schindler's List where it's all black and white. And then all of a sudden there's that red, red little girl in her dress. And then yeah. you see her on a pile and, and you're able to pick out of the, the craziness one story and go, oh my gosh, my heart feels for that little girl with the red dress. Sure. It, it's symbolic of bring us down to the granular experience of Ricky to, to help us understand what that black experience is for people who might not know it and they're just busy throwing stats around. Sure, man. I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about some things I've been through, but I also want to encourage, you know, you and, and your folks, right? Like, you know, to hear that testimony from several testifiers, right? Like, I, I, all I know is me. And I can only speak authoritatively about what I've seen. I, I had been through dramatic or terrific experiences comparatively with some of my friends. But, you know, I grew up in the South, Black church tradition. Uh, Pearl, Mississippi is where I come from. Uh, my, I had parents and forebearers who are part of the civil rights movement. My aunt AME, God rest her soul, her house is on the civil rights tour for the state of Mississippi. Her house was where Dr. King and Abernathy and Shuttlesworth, when they came to Jackson, would stop off because she made the best pies. She was a closet organizer for the civil rights movement. So whenever the Freedom Riders came through Jackson, it was my Aunt AME's um, job to go bail them out and march with them. And so that I grew up, my uncle Meredith was a part of the Tougaloo Nine. I encourage everybody to Google the Tougaloo Nine. He was a college student at Tougaloo College, all black HBCU in Jackson, Mississippi. They were the first to try to do integration in a public space during the civil rights movement. So dude, I grew up with that, right? Uh, but still, Southern country boy coming up from Mississippi. Let me, let me, I'll, I'll tell you about a couple of experiences, but let me tell you what normal is for a black guy. And it's not South, it's a black guy it, when parents are raising you up. So um, when you start driving, your parents start talking to you differently. So when you start driving, you can kind of be on your own and be away from them. This is kind of how the talk goes when you get ready to leave the house. Listen, look in people's eyes. Don't look suspicious. Don't, don't grab for stuff too quickly when you go out in public. Don't you speed, don't drive crazy. If you get pulled over, roll all your windows down so the police officer can see into the car, put both your hands on the steering wheel and look straight ahead. Don't you raise your voice. It doesn't matter if you are right, it doesn't matter if they are wrong, be respectful, they are right the whole time. Look them in the eye. If they say grab your license, ask them permission. Is it okay to move my hands and you move your hands slow? Okay, make sure that you never ever run from the police. If you're at a party and the police come up and all your friends run, you get down and put your hands up, you don't move. That's a normal conversation between a black parent and a black child in America, okay? Especially for males. Um, when I go into a bank to this day, I'm 43 and I'm in the Valley, right? Like this is, I'm in Mayberry. The police officers <laughs> here are my friends. Right. Okay, so like, I've, I've, I've never been more safe than in the Coachella Valley, praise Jesus. Right. 43 though, to this day, when I go into a bank, anything that I need to pull out and deal with, I'd never pull it out of my pockets because I don't want to pull out of my pockets when I'm in a bank. Um, I never, I'm always watching myself to see how others are watching me so I'm not perceived as a threat. So there's just conditioning in realities, bro. Um, you know, dude, I'm, again, you know, I haven't been through that much. I've been called N-word a couple of dozen times from white folks uh, in the South racially. Um, I got a brand new Camaro my senior year in high school, 1995, and brand new car. I got pulled over six, seven times that year. Uh, it's, just, it's clean, you know what I'm saying? I got pulled over six, seven times for nothing just for a police officer to check my record 
check the registrar. My, my brother was driving my car one morning on his way to school, got pulled over for nothing. And the police car, the policeman forced him out of his car, frisked him. He spread over over the car, car mind you, 7 a.m. in the morning. And the whole time the police officer, she's saying to him, black man, nice car. Black man, nice car, what's wrong with this? My brother's weeping and scared yeah. wow. the whole time. Thank God my dad's driving by and begs them to please leave him alone. They finally let him alone. Um, man, I've been through um, a lot of moments where I was accused of stuff just because I was the wrong color at the wrong time or whatnot. I'm about as squeaky clean as you're gonna find. I got a pass, don't get me wrong, but I'm a church nerd. You know what I'm saying? And so just by virtue of looking like me. But before I close the answer, dude, I really want to tell you about what my dad went through. So my dad, almost 70, African-American, obviously, grew up in Mississippi. So dad, his siblings were the first to integrate public schools in our hometown. Uh, they had to fight every day. Uh, a lot of them would be cornered by white students and spit on because they were integrating the schools. Uh, one day, my dad missed the bus, was walking home, and a group of white kids were in a pickup truck, and they were trailing him. And we're about, dad said, I, I may be able to take two or three out of them, but I'm probably about to get beaten to a pulp. My uncle Robert is driving through at the right time to pick him up. Uh, my dad says one time, uh, him and his brother, 14, 15 years old, are walking around. A nine-year-old white kid, troubled little kid, is calling him inward and a nine-year-old is pulling out a pocket knife on him, you know, stuff like that. Uh, my grandparents' home was firebombed by young white kids every weekend for months while they did the integration stuff because they were mad at my grandparents. My uh, grandmother worked for a guy. She was his maid. And when she integrated the schools with my, uh, my dad and my uncles and aunts, the Ku Klux Klan, came to my grandmother's boss and threatened him and said, you gotta fire that girl. And Mr. Bright was his name. I'm gonna thank him when I get to heaven because he took a stand. He said, I'm not firing her, she did nothing wrong. The Ku Klux Klan had a burning cross in her yard, uh, in his yard the next Sunday night. Uh, my dad, smart kid, I just found this out this week, Mark. I didn't even know this. My dad back in 1969 got a 23 on his ACT. 1969, 23 in your ACT as a black kid, meant you could probably go to Harvard for free. Right. The counselor never turned in my dad's scores. Never turned, changed the trajectory of his life. Uh, dad ended up being a service tech for a phone company. The counselor repented like 10, 12 years later at a church service. He got up and confessed that he had done this to so many African-American students didn't turn in their scores where they couldn't move up and he died the next month, right? So, you know what I mean? But dude, hey, I'm average. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Well, you, you told me even when, uh, a couple of years ago, when you were new to the Coachella Valley and you'd be driving in the car with April, you had a couple of experiences. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think you're talking about actually back in Memphis. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. Are you talking about the Chick-fil-A thing and the, uh, yeah. the Walmart thing? Yeah, so this is, this is actually when we first, <laughs> when we first got, when we first got this, this, is, this is nothing to me. It's terrible, but it's nothing to me. It's just normal. Uh, we're at Walmart in, um, right across the bridge in Memphis, Tennessee, um, <laughs> and we're dating, right? So like, if, if April's a pretty attractive girl, she looks like a, she looks like she's from, she looks like a Swedish model. She looks like Aaron, right? And so I'm, I'm just pushing the cart and we're shopping for groceries. Well, here I am, this African-American dude with this, you know, kind of Barbie. And we're obviously together. We were dating, so we still like, like we still kissed every day. And then, okay. Not uh, until you were married did you kiss. Not, not until the day you were standing in front of the crowd. We waited till nine months after marriage before we even held hands. That's good, and that's, um, that's important. That's just to prove to the Lord. Absolutely. In fact, we only have sex to procreate anyways. Right. Um, <laughs> so we're at Walmart, and we're pushing, and bro, like, you know, my white siblings, my white brothers and sisters are like, and they're watching us just walk around, like, with these looks of disgust. 
and April is just incensed about this because she's just like, what is going on? My wife was so sick and ticked off at people looking at us that she says, you know what? I'm going to give them something to look at. And she jumps into the shopping cart and she stands up in the shopping cart for the rest of our shopping experience. So she's like, now this is something worth staring at. But anyway, <laughs> I don't know if that was the story you're talking about, but that's one thing that happened. I love it. I love it. So um, the other day, I was watching uh, a clip with, uh, with T.D. Jakes and he was talking about the idea of um, we're not asking to not be arrested. Uh, we're not asking for uh, people not to arrest black people because yes, and, and there's a lot of people out there saying, you know, hey, look, there's these stats on black crime and, uh, you know, of course they're, you know, arrested more and blah, blah, because statistically they do this, you know, all of those debates, right? Um, and T.D. Jakes made this point about we're not asking not to be arrested. There's a lot of black crime. Yes, that's legit. We're just asking not to be tried and executed on the sidewalk. Um, speaking to that a little bit, because I think I hear uh, people trying to navigate this conversation and, and almost come from the other side and say, let's, let's be careful not to get too uh, far down the road. And, you know, let's realize the stats are this and the stats are that. How are you having those conversations with your white friends, white evangelical friends, you're leading a church full of them where they're quickly jumping to these stats and they're missing the feeling and the, the granular in the midst of it. How are you pastoring that? Well, I think, um, you know, first of all, I think it's, they're not just missing the granular, they're missing the stats as well. Mm. And one of the things that privilege does is it creates a body of evidence that is literally produced to sustain the status quo of white comfort over and above black and persons of color discomfort. When you are not exposed to multi-ethnic relationships, whereby you have context for what those stats mean, you'll, you'll, you'll sound like you only listen to one echo chamber of data and you end up becoming offensive instead of helpful. Case in point, um, a lot of people at moments like this will say, what about Southside Chicago and black on black crime that's happening there? Look at the white community. Most of their crime is white on white. Right. Look at the Asian community. Most of their crime is Asian on Asian. Mm -hmm. um, what do you hear about in the news? Black on black crime. Mm -hmm. And so people will say, but more white guys were killed by police brutality than there were black guys. That is true. But African-Americans make up 13% of the population. Yeah. How can we be that close? <laughs> exactly. It's a silly stat because the, the, the group, you need to talk percentages, not amounts of people. Well, and if you don't know the relevant data and context of history in this country and systemic racism, if you don't know anything about redlining when it comes to housing discrimination, if you don't know how banks were set up and then legally authorized to honor the loan applications of white communities and over and above persons of color communities, if you don't know the failed attempt of reconstruction in this country and Jim Crow, you don't get why there's more crime and more depression in a black neighborhood than your average white neighborhood. And so Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, said, getting mad, when he talked about South Side Chicago crime, and black on black crime, he said, getting angry about black on black crime is like shooting a guy and then getting ticked off at him for bleeding. And so if you don't understand the conditions that created those realities, so the stats don't even mean anything to me because the stats aren't real. The stats are promoting uh, an echo chamber and a body of rhetoric that doesn't even help the conversation anyways. That's why one, to answer your question, to go back on the ground, that's why I keep going back on that metaphor for our people. And this is just now starting at Southwest, by the way. We are not, we, we, we are just a good old fashioned, Jesus loving, Bible loving church. And yeah. Yeah, these conversations are starting. But that's why I think I can serve my brothers and sisters to say, move past feeling bad yeah. and move towards speaking up. Yeah. Because if you don't get that the, heart of Jesus is for everybody to be happy 
yeah. to be treated just like everybody else. You're never going to really grasp what God is calling us to do at this moment. So yeah. white, my white brothers and sisters typically feel like I've gone far enough because I feel bad. I feel bad. This is terrible. I feel bad. Eh, there's nowhere in the gospel where Jesus says, feeling bad, that's the goal. No, you're just not going to see it. God calls us to speak up and to speak out and to move and to act. Galatians 2, right? This is Paul and Peter. And Peter showed racism. Paul didn't stop by feeling bad about it. It's like, man, I feel terrible that Peter's being racist right now. My heart's broken. Oh, this is so sad. Moving on. Yeah, yeah. Paul opposed him to his face, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so when, when you're having to, um, one of the questions I asked online, you know, what, what people want to ask you, um, and, you know, one of the questions was, there was a lot of what, what can we do questions, which we'll get to, but um, there's a lot of, like, how do we teach our kids about racism, reconciliation, this conversation um, in, in, a, in, in a way that actually helps them you know be able to be empathetic what are you thinking not that you're a school teacher and you know your kids are young enough now where you're probably not sitting them down talking jim crow and whatever but what is do you have (laughs) advice do you have advice ideas about here's how to actually talk to your kids about this or here's what april and i have been talking about as our kids grow up because they're going to have an interesting experience yeah and what you're thinking about talking to them about sure Sure. Yeah. And my, I, I'm not sure if what I'm going to tell my kids is helpful. I'm going to tell my kids how to ha- act around a policeman. I don't think the person, the average person watching this will have to have that conversation. So I don't even want to, my kids will be commandos. Like, my, my, like, it's, <laughs> well, tell that, tell that like, story. And, and, and just to, just to emphasize this point a second, I heard you tell the story about you in the, in Memphis in the restaurant with your accountability Tell, tell, give oh, us yeah, a, yeah, yeah. That's a great picture of the difference between the experience of yep. the regular black experience versus the regular white experience. Sure, sure. And then let's go back to what yeah. to tell the children. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Off there. Yeah. yeah, this kind of goes under that get friends rubric, man, and just encouraging yeah. you to expose yourself to multi-ethnic friendships. Because when you do that, what you read as facts move to facts plus feelings. Because I can look at the facts through the lens of a friendship with someone who doesn't look like me, act like me, vote like me. Right. So this is back in our Memphis days, dude. And um, we were at a church. I was had started a campus in downtown Memphis, multi-ethnic. Had a good buddy, still one of my best friends, Jeff Randall. Jeff Randall's country and white and from Indiana. I'm country and black and from Mississippi. We were both newlyweds. And we went on a mission trip to Honduras. And we said, hey, man, we ought to just start hanging out. Let's, let's be accountability partners. Let's read scripture to say it was legit, but let's just hang out and keep each other strong. So dude, we're meeting for like a year on Thursdays. In fact, that's a 10 year relationship. Um, and we, we would meet a lot of th- this one particular Thursday or whatever it was, we're at the arcade restaurant, which is Elvis's favorite place in Memphis. And we walk nope. in. It's still, still his favorite place. Yeah. yeah Cause he's still, yeah, he's alive. Yeah, Cause yeah. he never died. And yeah. so, um, yeah, nor did Marvin Gaye. But anyway, uh, we walk in, dude, normal Thursday. I noticed there's a table of sheriffs and, and deputies, right? We say hey to the office, sit down, have our breakfast. It's awesome. Now, we took turns paying for each other. So it's my turn to pay. We walk up to, to the cash register. She's like a teenage white girl, you know? And I walk up and I pull up my wallet. I'm like, dang, I forgot my wallet. Because I always forget my wallet. I was like, dude, I forgot my wallet. I was like, can you cover us? He's like, yeah, 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 no problem. He pulls for his wallet, no wallet. So he's like, dude, I forgot my wallet too. Mark, I started to literally freak out. Like I'm close to hyperventilation and I'm spazzing. And so I'm talking to the clerk. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Look, um, I'll, I'll stay here. I'll stay right here. I won't move. I'll stay here where you can see me. He lives right around the corner, so he'll come, but I'll stay right here. It's, it's all good. Because in my mind, these sheriffs are about to arrest us and take us to jail. That's what's planned, right? So I'm noticing she's looking at me like I'm nuts. Jeff's getting ticked at me. So my buddy's like, like he's like, dude, what are you talking about? Uh, 
And he looks at her and says, uh, hey, I live around the corner. I'll be back in a half hour. And she's like, okay. <laughs> Yeah. And, and we walk out and he's changing the subject. He's already like, yeah, so bro, next week we can. And I'm like, whoa. Yeah, let's take a minute and breathe this in. I was like, dude, I thought we were about to get arrested. Right. He's like, are you serious? Mm. I said, yeah, bro, I can't, I don't, I don't, I can't believe what just happened. Yeah. And he's like, whoa. And we went back inside to talk about how his world was versus how my world was. And dude, it's because of that ex that exposure, right? That we got a lot more understanding. That's why it's so important to have multi-ethnic relationships. Great. Okay, come back to the kids. Yeah, just a couple of things. I don't know how to raise children. My oldest is six, so all I know is what not to do. <laughs> but I see a couple of themes with uh, my white brothers and sisters in parenting regarding the conversation of race. It's not so much for me, Mark, how to talk about race. It's just to make up your mind you will talk about race. Yeah. Right. I don't know how. No one knows how. That's we're not looking for a, you know, <laughs> we're we're not looking for a Frederick Douglass voice coming out of white parents or a black parent. But just make up your mind that you will teach them what you do know and what you know the scripture teaches. It's not how, it's actually talk to them about it. Because that's the privilege of being white in America. The conversation my parents had with me at four right? Like an average white family doesn't have, because it's just not a reality for them, but bring that to the table. So number one is how. Number two, never, ever, ever teach color blindness to your kids. It's not biblical. It's not logical. And I say this with grace. It is stupid. So I appreciate the heart because I know what you're saying. I, colored a, yeah. I don't see your color. I don't see color. We're but all human beings. There's yes. only one race, the human yes. race. Yes. <laughs> to the person of color, you just dismissed me. Right. Because you basically said, I don't see color when I read a passage in a Bible about a God who made color. Right. So God sees color, and yeah. God didn't have a problem with it. Right. So it's kind of avoiding the conversations we really need to have. So when people say, well, I'm colorblind, you're lying. You're not colorblind because you see it. And you're trying to say, I, I, I choose not to get involved in that conversation when the gospel calls us to get involved, to see it, embrace all well, of us. I, I even see people, you know, just to kind of play the, the role of the questioning yep. regular Joe here. Like I see people jumping into, you know, yes, um, all, you know, we're all the races, it's not a thing. We're all human beings and, and, you know, even animals matter. And it's like, yes, animals matter. Everyone, like we know this, but that's not what we're talking about right now. Yeah. So, so there's this, I'm seeing this proclivity to constantly be changing the topic of conversation, even as you, you, you talked about the riots and stuff. So how have you processed um, that when you're watching, one of the questions that came in, how are you processing the riots and, and then saying to yourself, we got to be careful. Cause I look at that and I'm like, yeah, separate conversation almost like connected hundred percent, but we just changed the topic so quick. Yeah. Yeah. Away from what we really should be talking about. Yeah. Um, to now we're talking about looting and rioting and other. So how are you in those conversations? Because I'm sure you you're having a lot of them yeah. um, in your context. How are you navigating that, that conversation and that balance? Yeah. I don't think it's, I don't know how helpful it is in the way that I'm processing it because, um, you know, I literally say, stop chronology. How do you feel about what happened first? Yeah. Because I haven't heard that. Right. right. So it's almost a dumb question. Right? Like, right. no dumb question, but it's almost a dumb question. Right. Hey, Ricky, you're an evangelical pastor who professes that scripture is inerrant and that Jesus is the only way to God. How do you feel about looting and rioting? <laughs> like, what am I supposed uh, to say? Like, it's I a love category it. mistake, right? right. <laughs> of course, I think, you know, of course, right. that's, you know, it's, right. it's the sins of, a, of, of fools, right? Now, I justify the anger, but let's call it what it is, man, especially when you think about Officer David Dorn, a police officer in St. Louis defending a store, I think, African-American police officer who's dead now because of fools and demonic sin. Of course, our heart breaks about that. But I, want, I, I push back and say, is part of your heart broken or your whole heart? 
And if your whole heart is broken, you are sad and you're lamenting now, not just because of a lot looting and rioting, you are sad and lamenting because um, George Floyd was murdered. You are lamenting because this condition still continue in America. You are broken because we have to even have this conversation in 2020 and your heart is broken because there's looting and rioting on top of it, right? Yeah. So your heart, your whole heart has to break, but that's what I say uh, to yeah. stuff like that, right? That's great. That's great. Yeah. Um, so I want to try to get into um, maybe almost a layer down here, which okay. is like, as you have processed, as you, you existed in Oakland, Chicago, Memphis, you're doing your you know thesis stuff on civil rights. You've hung out with these great leaders. Um, obviously, the conversation gets into because these are very smart men and smart movements. Um, the conversation gets into solutions, right? Yeah. About the fact that you know. Um, there are actual, like you said, systemic things going on. There's, there's certain proclivities and, and cultural realities that happen. Um, what is the ultimate solution to these problems in America? That's a conversation that these churches and Philly and all these places are having. Mm -hmm. Help bring us, because we don't know, okay? mm -hmm. we, don't, we don't hear those conversations behind closed doors or maybe from the pulpits at times. Um, what are the actual two or three solutions that these movements talk about these Christian movements where it's like, this is the actual solution to this thing. So is it, you know, hitting on the, you know, you hear different people talk about the fatherlessness stuff and the, the educational stuff and the being able to get all of those kind of systemic things that a hundred years from now, things are going to be different because we were able to solve this, this, and this, and that's what we're fighting for. That's the change we're trying to bring about. What, what are two or three of those things? Sure, yeah. Uh, I'll do a couple of small things, and then I'll do what I think is the big thing, right? Mm -hmm. So, and I'll be very brief with the small thing. So there's an obvious issue with how um, the issue specifically of police brutality can happen, right? And again, let me honor the law enforcement community mm -hmm. real quick. Because I don't want anyone to think that my heart is anti-police. I've got too many cousins that wear the badge, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, and a few actions, or the actions of a few fools do not speak for the entire. Let me just say that and encourage my brothers and sisters in that community. But we do need, on the local level, a fresh take of legalization. You know, what a police officer can and cannot do um, um, and how we retrain, right? Um, we... So there's legalization. That's a whole nother conversation. So I'm not going to spend much time on it. The second one is incentivization, right? And so this is where I think the church can lead. We need to start rewarding and praising law enforcement for how they de-escalate, not how they escalate, right? Like that needs to be officer of the year, officer of the week. Um, every church, every local church, Debro, should have an intimate connection with their local enforcement. Uh, so they can know that they've got backing and they're being incentivized to continue being salt and light with the badge. So there's uh, incentivization. The third one um, is, um, you know, more so the big picture. So the heart, right? We're talking about the heart, dude. We can't legislate the heart, right? Change has to happen. Well, there's an original sin in America called race. And I wish we could really get into that to talk about the history of how these ideas became legalized, culturalized, because it goes back centuries. A whole nother conversation for a whole nother time. Mm -hmm. But until we get to a place where we can honestly, vulnerably dismantle the way in which in our country, yeah. what I would call whiteness is established as normalcy and standard, and how that is what ends up bringing a certain sense of degradation to what it means to be made in the image of God, a certain sense of defeatedness for what it means in this country if you are not a part of this whiteness. Now, I'm not saying white people are bad, I'm saying whiteness, okay, it's a difference. Mm -hmm. And so, but it's, it's posture and it's presented in our culture as normal, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, I don't know when you were growing up, if you had a Cabbage Patch doll, I think I'm older than you, so that was probably not cool when you were coming up, you probably more like Power Rangers. Right. Um, but here's my point. Um, when I would go shopping for my Cabbage Patch doll, right, you'd find, try to find a boy. 
it was one black one mm-hmm. that had, if you will, a white nose mm-hmm. and small skin, skinny white lips. Mm-hmm. It just had a complexion, but that was my cabbage patch. And all the other 200 options are white. When my sister wanted a Barbie, it's like 75 white Barbies, blonde hair, right? <laughs> that looks the furthest thing from my sister. Oh, finally, there's the one black Barbie. Okay, like <laughs> black Barbie. Got it, found uh, it. Yeah, children's books. Mm-hmm. When my mom took us to get children's books, 99%, the number is actually 92%. 92% of children's stories growing up were white expressions, 8%. So the culture of whiteness makes anything that doesn't, um, that's not a part of that milieu abnormal, mm-hmm. right? And so that's why I keep going back to that metaphor until you as a white person are happy to be treated like everyone else. We are not there. And so we've got to, from the scripture, talk about God's heart for all people. Because I, I actually say all lives matter more than black lives matter too, right? For me, all lives matter. It's just that one of these folks, you know, it's like saying, you know, have you ever heard this one when they say, uh, people say, what about all lives matter? And of course, I agree with that. Jesus does too, by the way. But here's the thing, it's like saying all houses matter in a neighborhood where one of the houses is on fire. Right. <laughs> yeah, I saw, I saw that meme where the guy's yeah. got the hose yeah. on, the, on the house yeah. that's fine, and then the, the yeah. house is burning beside him, and he's yeah. like, hey, like don't put that matter. fire out, all houses yeah. matter, right? Right, 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 right. Yeah, in Luke 15, right, Jesus left the 99 in the parable to go to the one. No one right. said, wait a minute, all sheep matter. Yeah, right. one of these sheep's in trouble. And so until we get to a place where you have honest conversation, where you can say, man, whiteness has been made normal, and that's the systemic injustice, and that is the design of Satan's attack of racism and systemic injustice in this country. And let's have that conversation over dinner and talk about the realities of that and implications of it. We're not going to get anywhere. So yeah, we want legalization. Yeah, we're praying for that. Yeah, we're praying in a place where law enforcement can be celebrated and incentivized and all that good stuff. But bro, at the end of the day, man, we need Jesus to expose yeah. to us the sin, all of the sin, so where we can have some honest and vulnerable conversations to move forward. Right. Yeah, that's great. And what what are the coming back to one of the reasons that's talked about the whole fatherlessness thing? What are yeah. the conversations in those churches around how you inspire that? being able to go, okay, look, this is an issue. We need to help solve it. What, what is the conversation about to solve that problem? Fatherlessness? Yeah. I don't, I, I don't, I don't claim to know. I think you can't solve a problem till you know what caused it. Yeah. And so when I hear people talk about fatherlessness, um, you know, the first thing I think is, man, I wonder if you know how that happened, Yeah. you know, cause it wasn't, in my community, it wasn't black guys saying, I don't want to be a father. Right. Just wasn't. It was realities of I cannot get a break in my world compounded by years and years and years of a system that made for an actual healthy um, um, vision of a future to sprout in the hearts of too many black men. And yeah. they just gave up or they gave over devices. And that happens in every community. We know that. Sure. But man, for the first is people that talk about fatherlessness, I say, do you actually know what happened on plantations? Do you know fatherlessness was invented by slave masters right. who would literally take the most healthiest African-American slaves that they had yeah. and literally go breed them with other women well, and, so then would, like- and would sell their breeding to yeah. another plantation? or whatnot it's a reason african-americans are good at football it's, it's natural, natural selection it's 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 darwinism yeah yeah exactly it's like yeah. it's like so i mean your your question is is worthy of conversation i think what we got to do now like we're treating the symptoms and not treating the yeah. sick exactly. and the sickness is the history of this is jacked up and we got to atone for that and we got to repent for that until we see it that way we're never going to want to fix symptoms does that make sense? And, yeah. And, well, and part of the, the whole question, again, playing the role of the, the talking points that you see out there, 
And, yep. and, and part of the tension is you see these talking points. So the real problem is fatherless. But that's, you know, it's like here, it's like, okay, but we always have to go, but why, but why, but why, but why, but why? There you go. And then, right? And then start talking about, okay, this. There you what go. What about this? And, you know, and so it's what you're talking about. It's These are down, oftentimes what I'm seeing are downstream arguments um, against something and they don't understand the upstream how we got here is actually impacting this, which is an important part of the conversation. So if you don't know how we got to here, to your point, we'll never know how to get back there. Right. <laughs> and so yeah. until then, we're putting Band-Aids on a gunshot wound. You know right. what I'm saying? Right. It's not the conversation we need to be having. Yeah. So um, before anything else you want to talk about, about how you're shepherding your church, speaking to your church about this right now, how you are navigating these waters, in this moment, what is your what is your big messaging and your kind of go-tos right now? Yeah, I think right now, and I'm just gonna talk about me and Southwest, bro, all I wanna be is a shepherd. Um, I happen to have a little competency on this conversation so I can bring that to bear on how I love people. Uh, we will get there, bro, sorry if I get a little emotional. Um, I ain't Malcolm X, I'm Ricky Jenkins. And God's called me to love the sheep of the Coachella Valley and to serve them sacrificially and wholeheartedly as long as God says. And I, I just believe it's through the commitment to that that we will get a little further down the road. I'm not the guy who knows racial construct and critical theory. I know a little bit about it, but I'm not employing that in what God's called me to do and shepherd these people. My hope, bro, is that because God called a guy who looks like me to serve at a church that looks like that church looks, is that through that relationship, we'll get a little further down the road. I don't, I don't know how this is going to sound to your folks, and I'm sorry. I apologize for it. Edit it out if you need to. Because of what I've seen and what I've been through, I don't envision... I just don't envision what I'm praying for in my lifetime. Maybe I've just been through too much. I hope it does, but I don't, I don't, I don't, unless the Lord's doing a miracle, I don't see it. But bro, my hope is that I'm passing that on to my children. So my hope for Southwest is that we'll be able to wrestle with it and figure some stuff out where our children can walk behind us and actually experience it in the fullness for them. Mm -hmm. And that's just where I mean, you can pray for that too. <laughs> totally. Okay, um, man, uh, last, last question, because this, this is one that a lot of people wrote in about. Um, for whatever, whatever motives that people have toward asking this question, I think they're-, they're Yeah. Um, and it's just simply, what can we do? And I know it's, it's uh, it's kind of that classic, you know, when tragedy happens, people feel helpless and they're like, they want to actually do something, right? They want to, yeah. what are the, you know, and so you got these people literally sitting in their homes, which is an interesting dynamic right now. Yeah, it is. It is. Living on social media, which, which has probably, you know, uh, magnified this in, in some sense. Oh, totally. A hundred percent. Right. Yeah. And, um, and so they're, they're asking, what do we as a normal Joe blow, what do we do about any of this? Yeah. Um, all right, bro. You asked the question, so I'm going to answer it. All right. Please. Um, we need every last one of us to repent. That's good. All of us. And that is offensive to a lot of my white brothers and sisters watching this who can very legitimately say, I'm not racist. I didn't do anything. What are you talking about? And I apologize for how it comes off. But when I read my Bible, God wasn't playing about sin, individual or corporate. <laughs> so in the Old Testament, his plan was literally I don't move forward when you, I will not move you forward when you sin. I'm serious about this covenant. Ricky, give me Bible. I'm glad you asked. Joshua 7, 
really aching? Okay, the sin of one person pressed pause on God's whole program for a nation. And God basically said, I ain't moving forward with you two million unless you deal with what happened with that one. Yeah, come on. The whole community has to deal with that. Their hearts have to break and then move in a different direction. And so long story short, bro, in our country, I call this individualized versus collectivized. Yeah. And so what oppression means for an African-American is that I grow up in a collectivized ethic and framework. Yeah. What I mean by that is I represent a collective, not an individual. So when someone black does something embarrassing, I feel that is my own action. When someone black does something great, I feel that is my own accomplishment because I was forced to be in this monolith, even though that's not real. My white brother and sister average has probably never had to represent the whole. They are individualized. They enjoy freedoms that I cannot imagine. When a white person does something embarrassing, the average white person says, look at that idiot. But he doesn't feel what I feel in shame and embarrassment. And so what ends up happening is that when you talk to that individualized ethic and framework about the sin of racism, they assume equality. They assume a, a basis of evenness, whereby they say, yeah, what do we need to do about it? Yeah, let's fix this. But when you say repentance, they say, what are you talking about? Because I hadn't done anything. Well, we all have done something. I wasn't in the garden eating the fruit either. <laughs> and so my point is, until we get to a place where we say, yes, some great sin happened. And Lord, my heart is broken. And God, please move my heart away from non-racism towards anti-racism in this conversation, please we're never going to move forward as far as what we do. Yeah. So that's my yeah. first thing. So. And, and that's why, and that's why um, it's, it's, it's great that you say that because this is such a unique point about the church's role in society. Because what you're basically, because, because the regular Joe, I mean, they can repent in the, in the, in the, in the kind of the modern vernacular way, but they can't, only the church can actually repent in the sense of like ongoing Jesus focused gospel oriented repentance. And what you're saying is the, the, the salt, you know, the permeation of the church doing its job in repentance is actually going to have an impact to the culture. And so it always has to start with repentance because that's the thing downstream that's actually going to affect the culture, the non-Christian world, because you know, it's, it's funny when, and, and you know this, that in Colossians and Ephesians, Paul's on about the principalities and the powers, and we jump yeah. into this kind of Neil Anderson, that means demons clawing at you in your bedroom and, you know, like, you know, whatever, right. and the mirror right. fogs up and he's scratching right. at you. It's like in Paul's day, principalities and powers were the powers and the systems that flow down from the powers, you know, all yeah. of that. So it's, we've individualized everything to devotional Christianity where you're like, well, what did it say in the morning as I drank my coffee and I posted on Instagram, the principalities and powers that must be the demons. And it's like, actually, you know, you know, read the Walter Winks, read the, it's actually the Newbigin talks about this, the, the, the systems, the ethos of right. cities. Right. That's right. That actually have an impact over the mentality and the actions of people That's right. are the thing that Paul's on about when he's saying the gospel is going to change these things, preach to That's these it. things, That's it. you know? And so um, I think it's important that the church understands them as Christians actually have this massive role in how this changes, not only to come back to your point in marching and doing these things, a hundred percent. That's great. It's actually an individual and corporate repentance of sin that may or may not be theirs. That's look, what you're saying. Look at it. At, amen to everything you said. Look at it this way, Mark. From what you know about, let's say, let's, use, let's pick one group. Let's not do Protestants. Let's not do Catholics. Let's just talk about white evangelicals. Okay. Let's think about the power block there and the balance of influence. And let, just that one community. I'm not, it's, I'm not. I'm not absolving anyone else from responsibility, including myself. But let's just think about how much power 
and how much influential influence and potential is in not much in Canada, but in the United States, yes. Not in much in yes. Canada. It's, it's just y'all. Yeah, you it, and Aaron and, and a couple right. of families. But like, <laughs> lots of power around here. <laughs> right, 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 right. But think about how you think about it in the American landscape. Yeah. Imagine if every last one of those families' hearts broke over systemic injustice and racism and how that would move this country. Just that one power group. And so my point is, I'm just amening on what you just said. We have, the church has always led culture. Even when we're not doing anything, we're leading culture. Always. We came up with hospitals, not culture. We came up with art, not culture. And we'll come up with racial reconciliation, as we always have. This is not our first rodeo, by the way. We've done this before. We can do it again. Yeah, it's great. So good, man. That's good. I'm going to steal that and make it my own and never give you credit. Okay, good. I love it. Brother, thank you so much for this conversation. It's an important one. Let's do it again. Love, love you guys. You. Love April. And uh, dude, girls. Yeah. Thank you. And continue doing what you're doing. You're leading, you're pastoring, you're, you know, doing a lot of these conversations right now, which in a sense is good. You know, keep mm -hmm. leveraging the moment. You're not alone. And yep. uh, make sure you get rest though, too. Yeah, bro. For sure. These are tiring times. Okay. Love you, man. Yeah, love you, man. Peace. Thank you so much.